Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Was Anne Romney Right? Infinite Mystery, Intimate Goodness. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 30th, 2012. A neighborhood friend who's Jewish approached me at the gym recently with a question. Would you be willing to talk about religion? My husband and I disagree about Ann Romney's speech at the Republican convention. <clears throat> I didn't watch that speech, but if I understood my friend, Romney recounted how at first she was opposed to her husband running for president, but then she prayed and received God's assurance. Now she's confident that it's God's will for her husband, Mitt, to run for president. And so my friend Laura thought that Anne's Romney's prayer was incredibly presumptuous, or perhaps blatant pandering to voters. On the other hand, her husband thought that Romney was merely sincere. I was the religious expert, so what did I think? I said, come over to the house for hamburgers, let's watch football on TV, and then noodle that question over. One thing's for sure, it's very easy to claim that God is on your side. We all do it, and not just presidential candidates. The psalmist does it this week when he thanks God for destroying his enemies in Psalm 124. Instead of worshiping the holy other God who transcends all creation and cosmos, we create God in our own image and after our own likeness. That, by the way, is a great definition of idolatry. In his article in The New Yorker back in 2009, James Wood observes how in order to avoid such self-serving images of God, some of the most vociferous atheists make the opposite mistake. Their alternate images of God are barely even religious. Consider his two examples. In his book, Reason, Faith, and Revolution, Terry Eagleton recoils from the idolatrous appropriations of God, whether they come from television evangelists or extreme mullahs. He's written what might be the mess, best and even most colorful repudiation of atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. So far, so good. But for Eagleton, writes Wood, God is not the so-called meddling reality of the Hebrew Bible, and certainly not the father of the incarnate Son of God. Instead, he's more like an aristocratic vapor, a rarefied God whom no one, other than people like him, actually believes in. Or his second example. In his book, Saving God, from 2009, Philosopher Mark Johnston of Princeton rejects idolatrous notions of God as our personal patron. But his definition is what he calls, and here I quote, the ideally non-idolatrous God, the highest one, the outpouring of existence itself by way of its exemplification in ordinary existence for the sake of the self-disclosure of existence itself. Did he really say that? <coughs> yes, he did. 
So Eagleton and Johnston avoid the presumption of idolatry, says Wood, <coughs> but their own arcane alternatives are barely even religious. Needless to say, they are also far removed from the Jewish and Christian scriptures, not to mention the everyday longings of ordinary believers. The lectionary readings this week help us to avoid both extremes. In traditional theological language, they affirm the transcendence of God as wholly other and truly mysterious, but also his imminence as a loving father who's near to each one of us. In both the Jewish and Christian scriptures, God, in other words, is both infinite and intimate. The story of Esther never even names God, and yet God acts in human history. The Jewish woman Esther married the pagan king Xerxes of Persia, and through bizarre circumstances thwarted Haman's genocidal plot to annihilate the Jews. Yahweh is never mentioned, never seen, and never even heard from in the entire book, whereas by one count the pagan king is mentioned 190 times. Furthermore, the plot of this story hinges on intrigue, hatred, deceit, and eventual revenge by the Jews, who massacred 75,000 of their enemies. Nor is there any mention of the Mosaic Law, ritual purity, or the Hebrew sense of justice, mercy, and kindness. <coughs> For these reasons, <clears throat> the Book of Esther has had both Jewish and Christian detractors who objected to its inclusion in the Bible. Nonetheless, every year since then, Jews have observed the Feast of Purim as the month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. God was powerfully and providentially at work, even though no one even spoke his name. Similarly, in Mark's Gospel, just after arguing about who among them was the greatest, and just before James and John asked Jesus for positions of glory, the disciples saw an anonymous healer cast out demons in Jesus' name. This person was unknown to them. He must have been peripheral to the Jesus movement. He was not one of us, they complained, so we told him to stop. As if this healer needed their permission as the sole proprietors of the admission of Jesus. Their presumption and exclusionary attitude was sadly ironic, because whereas the disciples had just failed in exercising demons, this healer was successful. No, said Jesus, don't stop them, for whoever is not against us is for us. Even a simple act of kindness, like a sip of water, no matter its anonymity, advances God's kingdom. Literary affinities lead some scholars to connect Mark's passage with the story of Eldad and Medad in Numbers 11. When Moses appointed 70 elders, Eldad and Medad stood on the fringes of the community. And yet we read, the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied. 
When Joshua objected, tell them to stop. Moses rebuked him. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Mark and Moses remind us that God works how, when, and where he pleases, through whom he pleases, even if he's not named, and not just in the limiting ways we might want or imagine. But God is not merely mysterious. Yes, he is transcendent, but he's also imminent. He also reveals himself through predictable ways and means. Psalm 19 rejoices that God speaks to us through the works of creation and the words of Scripture. James writes that God not only speaks, he acts on our behalf. He hears our prayers. He forgives our sins. He heals our bodies. We should never imagine that God is our personal valet. But the God of James and the psalmist is nevertheless a far cry from Eagleton's aristocratic vapor or Johnston's outpouring of existence. Back in the 8th century, Christians wrestled with an important question in the iconoclastic controversy. Should believers make visible images of the invisible God, like icons, and then venerate them in worship? The, on the one hand, the iconoclasts, or image smashers, argued that finite material images of the infinite and immaterial God violated the Old Testament prohibitions against graven images. In their view, images were idolatrous. But the other side, the iconoduals, or image lovers, pointed to the incarnation of Jesus, in which God became a man and revealed himself in flesh and blood. The theologian John of Damascus thus wrote, In former times, God, who was without form or body, could never be depicted. But now, when God is seen in the flesh, conversing with men, I may make an image of the God whom I see. Both sides were defending an important point. The iconoclasts were right that the infinite God remains beyond human description and knowledge, and that idolatry is always a temptation. But the supporters of icons were also right that the invisible God became visible, that the material took on matter, that the infinite is also intimate. God is transcendent, and we should honor that mystery. But God is also imminent, and we should trust in his goodness. For books this week, I review Wendell Perry, Barry. The title is Given, a book of poems. Emeryville, California, Shoemaker Horde, 2005, 152 pages. Wendell Berry was born in 1934 to a family that had farmed Kentucky land for five generations. After studies and travels took him to the University of Kentucky, Stanford, France, Italy, and the Bronx, in 1965, he bought his own farm near his birthplace. 
He's been tilling the earth and churning out books ever since. Over 50 books of poetry, novels, essays, and short stories have earned in numerous awards as one of the leading truth-tellers of our day. When it was published in 2005, this book, Given, was Barry's first collection of new poems in 10 years. It has since been followed by the book Leavings, 2010, and then New Collected Poems, 2012, both of which I've also reviewed for Journey with Jesus. Readers will find here the same sort of poems that have characterized Barry's work for 50 years. Lament, outrage, prayers, love, gratitude, dreams, and a pronounced localism convinced of the powers of place. In that sense, there are no surprises. He stayed true to a consistent vision. <coughs> Especially noteworthy is the inclusion of eight years of his Sabbath poems <coughs> from 1998 to 2004. These are a series of poems Wendell Berry started long ago based upon his Sunday morning walks on his farm. Berry is known for his curmudgeonly outlook. He laments idiot luxury, our economy of greed, fantasy capitalism, fashionable lives, the destruction of mountains to mine coal, idiot politicians, the violence of war, in all manner of machines like cars and planes. In the poem, Further Words, he admits that he's an old-fashioned person who likes the world of nature despite its mortal dangers. Not a few people see him as an environmental extremist, but he's not a negative person, as he explains in his little poem, Why. And here I quote, Why all the embarrassment about being happy. Sometimes I'm as happy as a sleeping dog, and for the same reasons, and for others. Wendell Berry's still searching, he says, for a language that can make us whole and help us to live as true human beings. The author is Wendell Berry, a book of poems called Given from the year 2005. For movies this week, I review a new movie in the theaters called Compliance from the year 2012. Writer-director Craig Zobel's psychodrama explores a well-known and deeply disturbing question. Why do ordinary people comply with the demands of authority figures and do evil things? In this film, Sandra is a 50-something stressed-out manager of a fast-food restaurant in small-town Ohio. She's out of bacon, expecting a quality assurance secret guest from corporate, and it's a harried Friday night. She gets a phone call from one Officer Daniels, who says he's on the line with her regional manager and that they suspect one of her employees, Becky, of stealing from a customer. Would she please help? In fact, Officer Daniels is a prank caller who's a sadistic master of every form of psychological manipulation, 
intimidation, flattery, passive aggression, guilt, and so on. Sander complies with his requests for an increasingly abusive interrogation of Becky in the back room of the restaurant. Co-workers are drawn into this plot with varied responses. The movie has drawn comparisons to the participation of ordinary citizens in the Holocaust, or the famous prison study by the Stanford psychologist Philip Zimbardo that ended early when students started acting out their roles as abusive guards and compliant inmates. What's most disturbing, perhaps, about this film is the note at the end that says that it's based on over 70 similar incidents in 30 states. The writer and director is Craig Zobel. The title, Compliance. And for poetry this week, we posted a poem by Anna Kamienska, who lived from 1920 to 1986. The title is Those Who Carry. Those who carry pianos to the tenth floor wardrobes and coffins, an old man with a bundle of wood limps beyond the horizon. A woman with a hump of nettles, a mad woman pushing a pram full of vodka bottles, they will all be lifted like a gull's feather, like a dry leaf, like an eggshell, a scrap of newspaper. Blessed are those who carry, for they shall be lifted. Anna Kamienska, those who carry. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 30th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.